Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 18 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Margaret got into the driver's seat. She heard her husband call. Drive carefully, darling. She turned the key in the ignition. Boom. Graham married Margaret in 1974. He was in his early 30s and his new wife was in her mid-20s. Graham hadn't chosen to take up a high-powered career that his public school education could have laid the groundwork for. He worked as a hairdresser at Graham of Canesham in Somerset, a job that gave him the chance to meet women. It was an opportunity Graham didn't pass up. He changed career paths before he got married returning to run the family business with his father Charles at Widden Hill Farm in Horton Village, Gloucestershire, where they bred British Frisian cows. Graham, having no experience of running a farm, started learning the ropes. In April 1973, the father and son were taken to court. A neighbour said they had stolen four calves from his land. The court ruled in the neighbour's favour. The back houses were each fined £500 with an additional £100 for court costs. Charles Backhouse died in 1979, leaving the business, a pretty 18th century farmhouse and acres of land to his son. Since they were married, Graham and Margaret had had two children, a son and a daughter, and now appeared to be in an enviable position of inheriting a thriving business too. Upon receiving the farm, Graham decided to make some changes. 
he switched from farming cows to arable farming, growing crops. His idea didn't get off to a flying start. Two years in a row, crops produced a poor harvest. A crop disease called Take-All had lived up to its name by obliterating everything in the fields. Now Wooden Hill Farm was losing money. The farm still had some cattle, so Margaret planned to drive into town to collect antibiotics for the cows. Her husband reminded Margaret that her car was out of use until the battery was recharged. She was to take Graham's Volvo, which was parked in the driveway. She left the house on April 9th, 1984, so did Graham. He was on his way to the milking shed. He said, drive carefully, darling, and then was out of sight. Getting on with the day's business while listening to the radio, Graham was working alongside farmhand John Russell. By the time her husband had disappeared from view, Margaret Backhouse had reached the vehicle and got in. When she turned the key, there was an explosion. It came from under the car, below the driver's seat. In a split second, the blast had projected thousands of small metal ball bearings from under the seat, badly lacerating Margaret's legs and buttocks. Miraculously, she was alive and managed to crawl from the car. Her husband didn't hear her cries for help. At the end of the driveway, she frantically waved one of her arms for help, hoping that a passing motorist could see her. Michael Cleverly was driving past the farm in his minibus. He saw Margaret Backhouse's panic gestures and rushed to her aid. It was evident the woman was seriously injured. It wasn't immediately apparent what had happened as most of the Volvo's damage was on the underside of the car. Graham was summoned from the milk shed by the driver. He left hurriedly but paused to grab a blanket on the way. He raised his voice. Christ, what's happening? He tried covering Margaret with the blanket but in pain and shock she said, Leave me alone. Don't touch me. Don't move me. The police received a call about the explosion and the area was taped off as the car was still smoking. Not sure what they were dealing with, a mechanical fault or something planted in the vehicle, the bomb disposal team were called in. The scene took hours to secure, ensuring it was safe for the forensic scientists to come in and collect evidence. In the meantime, Margaret Backhouse was rushed to Frenchet Hospital. The injuries she sustained from the blast were severe. The lacerations were deep and reports say half of her left knee was blown off in the explosion. She needed to have two operations. The first, to remove over one pound of shrapnel, was eight hours long. It was fortunate she escaped with her life as the bomb contained approximately 4,500 tiny metal pellets. They had been emptied into a four-inch piece of galvanised steel pipe. The powder of 12 shotgun shells were used as the explosive. Wires went from the pipe and were connected to the heater in the car. When the key was turned, the ignition started the heater, which in turn triggered the device that had been placed under the driver's seat. The bomb was positioned to blast upwards. It could have been the seat that cushioned Margaret Backhouse from a fatal injury. The base of the seat was densely constructed from a few different components. thick foam springs, fabric and a heating element which were all directly above where the bomb was placed. 
a hole was visible from the underside of the car, near where the device had been located. The top of the vehicle was slightly buckled and a few cracked windows were noticeable from the outside. The inside showed the evidence of what happened. The interior was sprayed with blood, the base of the seat was destroyed, the back was split and ball bearings and shards of metal were scattered on the floor or had lodged themselves throughout the car during the explosion. Graham Backhouse was forthcoming with the authorities. That year Graham had been in touch with his local police station on several occasions. The first time was in January 1984 when he informed them that he had received a letter which threatened his life. The anonymous author claimed that Graham Backhouse had ruined his sister. The letter then apparently read, I'm going to get you, you bastard. Unfortunately, the letter had been disposed of, so there was no evidence. The police were told a few weeks later that the Backhouse home had received malicious phone calls. On March 30th, Graham again got in touch with the police, this time to report a sinister discovery on his land. A sheep's head had been severed and skewered on a fence post. A note had been attached. The herdsman John Russell had been the person to discover it as he came into work that morning. This time, Graham had retained the message. Two words, you next, were handwritten in large lettering covering multiple lines on the sheet of notepad-style paper. The word you was in lowercase, as was the letter N in next. EXT were in capitals. About a week later, the day of the bombing, Graham Backhouse told the police that he had received another letter. This one had been sent via Royal Mail. It had the same uneven handwriting on the envelope. This stood out, so the bomb disposal experts that were already at the scene checked it before it was opened. The letter inside read, Came twice last week, but the pigs were about. See you soon. Two words were spelt incorrectly. Twice were spelt T-Y-C-E and were W-E-R. The paper was also different to the last letter. It was unlined. After the contents had been logged, the letter was sent for forensic analysis. Widdenhill Farm was given 24-hour police surveillance and the telephone was fitted with a recording device. The evidence pointed to Graham being the intended target the first letter mentioning a ruined sister and the fact that Graham, not Margaret's car, was booby-trapped. Investigators needed to get to the bottom of who could have a vendetta against Graham Backhouse. A lot of leads came from Graham himself. He wasn't bashful about his extramarital affairs. One of the ongoing private romantic relationships he claimed he had was with a 25-year-old sheep farmer, Julien Lipiat, who lived on an adjoining farm. Reeling off his indiscretions, he suggested a close friend, David Hodkinson, could be responsible. The man who had served as a best man at Graham and Margaret's wedding years earlier was an electrical engineer and worked at a quarry, therefore had access to explosives and a knowledge of wiring. Graham claimed the reason for the grudge was because he had had, quote, heavy petting sessions on two occasions with his friend's wife, Caroline. Graham also claimed to have had other affairs. He offered the opinion that perhaps it could be any one of their husbands who was trying to get revenge. 
He confessed to various one-night stands while away from home at business conventions for livestock and farming. Another person Graham mentioned was Colin Bedale Taylor. Colin had been in an ongoing land dispute with Graham over the ownership of 200 yards of land. There was more bad blood according to Graham Backhouse. Colin also held a grudge as Colin's 19-year-old son Digby was involved in a car accident in the September of the previous year in which Digby sadly lost his life. Graham had befriended the man that drove the vehicle who was later acquitted of dangerous driving and gave him odd jobs around the farm. This was said to create a further rift between the neighbours. Colin was 63 and a retired personnel officer. He was good with his hands, would often be found in his workshop. He was particularly skilled at woodwork. He crafted a wooden bench which was in the village for the locals to enjoy. He and his wife, also called Margaret, lived alone since the death of their son. Their home, called the Gatehouse, was next door to the back houses. Police questioned almost every person in Horton Village. Some people voiced their knowledge about Graham's affairs, although rumours were rife about wife-swapping parties. It appeared Graham only took part before he married Margaret. Police filled in their notepads with gossip and scandal, but no other viable suspects were found. David Hodkinson appeared to be the obvious suspect. He had reason, the knowledge and technical skills to carry out making and planting a bomb. He was arrested and held under questioning, but absolutely no solid evidence tied him to any part of the crime. He was on holiday in Spain at the time of the explosion. Also, Gillian Lippiat denied anything sexual had happened between her and Graham Backhouse. She didn't even know him that well. She had a friendship with his parents, who advised her on livestock. Also, as with David Hodkinson, there was no evidence that Colin Bedale Taylor had any part in the happenings at Widden Hill Farm. Police kept guard at the house, but everything was quiet. Margaret Backhouse was still in the hospital, and the two children were out of harm's way staying with other family members. No suspicious phone calls had come in, and no more sinister letters had been delivered at the farm. Graham Backhouse was alone, but no contact was made. As the days came and went, a week passed, but the 24-hour surveillance of the farm yielded no new clues, suspects or information. While working with John Russell, Graham made a comment about receiving advice from the police. In addition to suggesting that he check his vehicles before he gets in, and making sure all buildings are locked and secure at night, the explained police said that he should unofficially carry a shotgun. Graham Backhouse also became terse with the officers monitoring the property. He requested that they stop guarding the farm. He believed if the perpetrator was to, quote, have another go, they wouldn't do so while police were lingering outside. If they were going to strike again, Graham said it would be better while the kids were away and Margaret was still recovering in hospital. Though reluctant, the police had no other choice but to withdraw surveillance. However, they did install a panic button in the farmhouse. If pressed, an alarm would sound at Staple Hill Police Station, just over 10 miles away. Officers wouldn't have to wait long before their help was needed. On 
On April 30th, around 8.20pm, police cars sped along the country roads, their sirens breaking the tranquility of the quiet village. Officers went around the back of the property and entered the back house home via a door in the kitchen. The room was very different from the last time they saw it. Small bright red pools of blood covered the floor. A dining room chair was laying tipped over on its side. In the hallway a man was lying blooded at the bottom of the stairs. A Stanley knife was tightly gripped in his lifeless hand. In the study, Graham was found sobbing and dripping blood. A deep gash travelled from one of his ears to the centre of his bottom lip. A second extensive wound ran diagonally across his torso. His shotgun laid on the floor beside him. Graham was rushed to hospital, the same one his wife Margaret Backhouse was convalescing in. His wounds were severe but not life-threatening. It appeared as though he was slashed with a knife but not stabbed. While Graham Backhouse was getting the 80 stitches used to treat the wound on his face, the police had secured the farmhouse after taking evidence. It was prepared for a forensic sweep the next day in the daylight. The following morning, Graham was eager to share his account of the previous night from his hospital bed. At 7.30pm on April 30th, there was a knock at the door. It was Graham's next-door neighbour, Colin Bedale Taylor. Graham offered him a coffee. The pair talked for a while, but the conversation took a sinister turn. Colin said he had come over to fix an old wooden chest that the back houses owned. Graham insisted that there was no need, as it didn't need fixing. According to Graham, Colin said God had sent him. The subject changed abruptly when he asked Graham, Why did you kill my son? Suspicious, Graham asked if Colin had planted the bomb, to which he responded he had, but he would not fail again. For a moment, Colin looked as if he was praying. Then he reached for a Stanley knife from the pocket of his trousers as a chair was knocked over. He lunged at Graham Backhouse, causing the injuries to his face. Graham recoiled, stepping back as Colin again slashed at his body. With the assailant still charging at him armed with a knife, Graham reached for his shotgun, which was leant against the stairs, and slowly stepped backwards while shouting at Colin to stay away. He was still coming towards him with the knife. Graham pulled the trigger twice into Colin Bedale Taylor's chest. He was killed instantly. Everything made sense. A neighbour with a grudge sought revenge on Graham Backhouse, and in the throes of grief he stopped at nothing, planting explosives then later revisiting his target armed with a knife. While Graham was in hospital, the investigation continued. The day after Colin Bedale Taylor was killed, a piece of pipe that matched the type used for the bomb was found on his driveway. Graham Backhouse was discharged from hospital on May 11th. The press had taken an interest in the story and waited outside for him to make comment. When Graham emerged, he did so with his wife Margaret beside him. She was supported by crutches and appeared to be uncomfortable. She neglected to return to the farmhouse at that time. Instead, she went to her father's house in Southampton. 
In the background, the evidence was being reviewed. Police dug deeper into the backhouse's lives. They found that the poor crops had taken a massive financial toll. Graham had a massive tax bill and owed the bank £60,000. Both Graham and Margaret had a life insurance policy for £50,000. And in addition to that, Graham took out a second policy on Margaret for the same amount. There also seemed to be some major discrepancies in Graham's account of the night Colin Bedale Taylor was killed. Graham Backhouse's story, just like the stories in the detective novels he told friends he wanted to write, began to unravel. He was arrested on May 14th. North Avon Magistrates Court in Bristol refused his application for bail. The evidence began to mount. The pipe found on the Bedale Taylor's driveway appeared to have been put there recently as the unfinished ends had not started to rust. The Stanley knife that was used to slice Graham Backhouse's face and torso was found firmly in the hand of Colin Bedale Taylor. Investigators had to prise the weapon from his hand. If he were brandishing the knife and then was shot, his grip would have loosened. The handle of the weapon bore the initials BT, scratched in an uneven font. Colin Bedale Taylor owned hundreds of tools in his workshop, which he kept uniformly neat and tidy. He had engraved many of them with his full name, not just his initials. The Unex note found with the sheep's head revealed an interesting doodle under light analysis. An indentation of multiple scribbled circles was found on the paper. The marks had been made by someone doodling on a page that covered it. A notepad was found in Graham's study that had the same drawing indentations. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Forensic biologist Jeffrey Robinson from the Forensic Laboratories in Chepstow was brought in to study the crime scene. The blood distributed in the house told a different story to the one Graham Backhouse was telling. Graham had said the chair had fallen before he was cut, but there was blood underneath the chair, not on top, meaning he was bleeding before the chair was tipped over. There was no blood on the shotgun, which Graham Backhouse insisted he picked up after his extensive injuries. Colin Bedale Taylor still had the knife in his hand, though instincts would have made him drop it and grab his chest when he was shot. Blood was present on Colin's hands, under the knife, suggesting that the knife had been put there after he had been shot. Graham Backhouse also claimed to have been attacked in the kitchen. Even though there was some blood present in the room, it didn't look to match the amount that would be there, especially while Graham was flinching and moving from an attacker. His wounds made his account extremely unlikely. The large gash on his face was accompanied by smaller tentative ones. It looked like he was getting up the nerve to make a larger cut. These types of hesitation wounds are often seen when people attempt to take their own lives by slitting their wrists. If Colin Bedale Taylor had slashed Graham's face as he described, the smaller cuts wouldn't have been made. The wounds didn't decrease in depth upon entry and exit, which further evidenced the fact that they had been made in a deliberate manner from someone standing still and not backing away from an attacker. Graham's Clark shoes had very little blood on them and his footprints found in the kitchen showed only a small amount of blood, which was inconsistent with a struggle. Additionally, the blood spatter at the scene was circular in shape, like it had dripped from someone standing still. In contrast, if the injuries were caused in a frenzied attack, there would have been more blood present and the pattern would have been long with spatter marks trailing. Studying the way blood looks at a crime scene, particularly what blood spatter says about the crime, was a new technique in the United Kingdom and was more commonplace in the US. Geoffrey Robinson was one of the pioneers to use this form of analysis in the UK. Graham Backhouse was held at Hawfield Prison in Bristol while awaiting trial. He would not admit his guilt and desperately schemed to try and shift the blame. He contacted his wife to ask for help. Graham wrote, The police are fabricating a case against me and my case is looking black. However, with your help, I can improve the case considerably. I want to fabricate a letter to the press, so please help me. I must get out of this hellhole. Margaret submitted the correspondence to the police. They later intercepted a letter to the Bristol Evening Post newspaper that had been smuggled out and posted by a fellow prisoner on his release. Backhouse offered £2,000 for the deed, but in reality, Graham wasn't in the financial position to pay. The author confessed to writing the threatening notes to the Backhouses. The letter claimed to be from Colin Bedell Taylor's partner in crime.
stood in the dock at Bristol Crown Court on Monday, January 28, 1985, Graham Backhouse looked passive in contrast to the angry scar across his face. It was the prosecution's belief that Graham Backhouse attempted to kill his wife to receive multiple life insurance payouts upon her death. After his attempt failed, Colin Bedale Taylor was then used as a scapegoat. Graham hoped police would believe that Colin had planned to kill him, first by using a car bomb, then when that didn't work, he returned to finish the job. On the second day of the trial, Graham Backhouse addressed the jury. He still stuck by his story, claiming he had shot his neighbour in self-defence. He gave them his version of events, remaining steadfast to what he had told police. Colin Bedale Taylor had come to his house, accused him of murdering his son, then tried to attack him with a knife. He told the jury, I turned into the stairwell and grabbed my gun which was lying on the stairs. I backed up the stairs and shouted, I have a gun. He claimed that Dale Taylor kept on coming and he had no choice but to shoot him. All of the evidence was building against Backhouse and it was damning. In addition to everything else, the envelope that was used for the letter that read came twice last week but the pigs were about contained fibres on the gum seal that matched one of Graham's cardigans. A handwriting expert, Michael Hall, believed that Graham Backhouse was the person to pen the letters. Backhouse made efforts to disguise his handwriting and deliberately spelt twice and were wrong, though he wasn't successful in hiding all of his writing characteristics. Pathologist Dr. William Kennard gave evidence to bolster the belief that Graham's wounds were self-inflicted. The pathologist said the wounds could have been caused by someone else, but Backhouse would have had to have stood there doing nothing while his attacker slashed him from shoulder to hip. But with no self-defence wounds, I favour self-infliction. Also, the facial wound was of a self-inflicted type, often seen in suicides, where tentative cuts are made before a major injury. On the 13th day of the trial, David Bulmer, a friend of Colin Bedale Taylor, gave a strange testimony. He said his friend Colin had predicted his own fate. Colin told David that he thought he would be killed by a neighbour following a disagreement over land. If his forecast turned out to be correct, Colin urged his friend to relay their conversation to the police. The sheep farmer Gillian Lippiat, who Graham claimed to have had an affair with, took to the stand. She said, I want to refute entirely allegations made by Graham Backhouse. She stood firm on the fact that her only association with him was through his parents or in a working capacity. She said the only assistance I asked Graham for was to winter shear a few rams and to destroy by shooting the occasional farm casualty that any livestock farmer incurs. This is something I can never do myself as I'm not licensed to carry a gun. She went on, Any suggestion by Graham Backhouse that there was any kind of relationship ever is a complete figment of his imagination and I find it extremely distasteful. Colin Bedale Taylor's widow Margaret addressed the court. She said that her husband was a skilled craftsman at woodwork but knew nothing of explosives or wiring. The herdsman on Widden Hill Farm, John Russell, also took to the stand and said he had been working for the backhouses since 1977. He said that Graham appeared to be fond of his wife and children 
and they seemed like a normal family. He went on to say that a few days before the explosion that left Margaret injured, he heard what sounded like a hacksaw on metal coming from one of the outhouses. Graham and John were alone on the farm at the time. At the end of the trial, the prosecution submitted their closing arguments. The prosecutor James Black QC said, We put our case firmly and squarely on the basis that Mr Backhouse is the evil man behind these matters. Margaret Backhouse had been in court throughout the trial, hearing the details of her husband's plan to kill her for money. She was filmed by reporters walking into court. She understandably looked tired and her pace was slow. The farmer's wife, Mrs. Margaret Backhouse, heard all the evidence. It was that her husband, heavily in debt, tried to blow her up with a homemade car bomb so that he could claim £100,000 in life insurance. On February 19th, 1985, the jury of eight men and four women deliberated for five and a half hours. They found Graham Backhouse guilty at a ratio of 10 to 2. The judge, Mr Justice Stuart Smith, spoke to Backhouse before the sentence was handed down. He said, Not content with trying to kill a wife who, according to your own evidence, loved you and had done no wrong, you then set about cold-bloodedly to plot and kill your neighbour who had never done you any harm and whom you barely knew. Graham Backhouse received two life sentences, one for killing Colin Bedale Taylor and the second for attempting to kill his wife. The defence made a submission for the recommended minimum sentence to be decided by the Home Secretary. This was accepted by the judge. Villagers thought the family was the target of a hate campaign. There were supposed to be threats. One note was found with a severed sheep's head. Thus the scene was set to make the killing look like self-defence, and Backhouse believed that the dead man would be taken as a scapegoat for the bombing. But forensic tests revealed the full chilling truth of what had happened. Giving him two life sentences, the judge said the farmer was a cold-blooded killer, a devious and wicked man. So where are we now? Graham Backhouse would not serve his two life sentences. It was reported that ten years later in June 1994, Backhouse was playing cricket in HMP Grendon in Buckinghamshire, a Category B prison. He suffered a heart attack that proved to be fatal. He was 53 years old. Rumours circulated after his death that he was engaged to a convicted con woman, Rosemary Abadawa, who we will be covering later this season. In March of the following year, Margaret Backhouse passed away in her sleep. She was just 48 years old and left behind two teenage children. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. If you would prefer to listen to our podcast a few days early without adverts, you can for just $3 a month. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash they walk among us. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast provider. 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.